Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning. We're back for the first time this month after Typhoon Sayola disrupted Hong Kong on Friday. I'm Peter Lewis and this is Money Talk on Monday the 4th of September. Thank you for making us one of Hong Kong's most listened to financial podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the People's Bank of China has cut financial institutions' FX reserve requirement ratio by 2 percentage points to 4% from 6%, effective from September the 15th in the latest move by Beijing to combat a depreciation of the renminbi. China's factory activities unexpectedly returned to growth in August as demand and production improved, a private survey showed Friday. The China Kaishin manufacturing PMI rose to 51 from 49.2 in July, exceeding expectations. This was the strongest pace of expansion in factory activity since February. The latest jobs figures from the United States showed solid hiring, wages growing at the slowest pace in 18 months and more people returning to the workforce, leading to a higher unemployment rate. The U.S. economy added 187,000 jobs in August, exceeding market expectations of 170,000, but it follows a cumulative 110,000 downward revision to the prior two months of payrolls. The jobless rate rose to 3.8%, the highest since February 2022, and above forecasts of 3.5%. Average hourly earnings rose less than expected by 0.2% after a 0.4% advance in the prior month. Hong Kong Financial Secretary Paul Chan said Sunday that lowering stamp duty on stock transactions won't be enough to stimulate long-term trading. Writing on his official blog, he said the key is to let investors feel optimistic about the outlook. This depends upon economic performance, company earnings, the pipeline of potential company listings and so on. Mr Chan said the performance of the Hong Kong stock market is clearly not ideal, but he warned that piecemeal measures to stimulate the market wouldn't be helpful in the long run. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Sam Favre, CEO at Mandarin Capital. Providing a view from mainland China will be Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks notched their biggest weekly gain since mid-June after the latest batch of economic data suggested the economy could be heading for a soft landing. The S&P 500 gained 0.2% on Friday to 4,516, taking its weekly advance to 2.5%. The Dow ticked up 116 points, or a third of a percent, to close at 34,838. For the week, it gained 1.4%. The Nasdaq Composite ended fractionally lower at 14,030 and gained 3.2% over the five sessions. The yield on the US 10-year Treasury notes jumped 8 basis points to 4.18% on Friday, rebounding from a three-week low of 4.06% earlier in the session as markets assessed the outlook for interest rates over the remainder of this year. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said that inflation remains too high and the labour market remains historically strong. Oil prices surged to 2023 highs on Friday after Russia signalled support for further supply cuts. Brent crude oil jumped 2% to trade at $88.55 a barrel, a gain of 4.8% for the week. 
The US dollar index rose for the seventh successive week, climbing 4.5% over that period. The Japanese yen continued to track the spread between US treasuries and Japanese government bonds. It dropped half a percent to 146.2. And offshore yuan strengthened 0.1% to 7.2695 per dollar Friday. That's the strongest level in three weeks, as the PBOC cuts financial institutions' FX reserve requirement ratio by two percentage points. And in Asian equities, Japan's Topics Index gained 0.8% to 2,350. That's its highest level in 33 years. Hong Kong markets were closed for the whole day Friday, as the city braced for a direct hit by Super Typhoon Sayola. The Shanghai Composite Index closed 0.4% higher Friday at 3,133, and for the week, the index climbed 2.3%. It looks like this morning the Hang Seng is going to open about 1% higher at around about 18,560. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at pizalewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's start a brand new week. We have our panel of guests with us. Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And also joining us, Sam Favre, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning, Sam. Morning, Peter. The People's Bank of China has cut financial institutions' FX reserve requirement ratio by two percentage points to 4% from 6%, effective from September the 15th in the latest move by Beijing to combat a depreciation of the renminbi. The Chinese currency has fallen about 5% this year, falling to its weakest since 2007 in August. And also China announced Thursday it would allow its largest cities to cut down payments for home buyers, and it's encouraging lenders to lower rates on existing mortgages to try and halt a slide in the country's residential property markets. The national minimum down payment will be uniformly set at 20% for first-time buyers and 30% for second-time purchases. And mortgage rate cuts will be negotiated between banks and customers according to market conditions. Both policies go into effect on September the 25th. So, Alex, is this going to boost demand for homes? Yeah, I think it would boost demands in uh, the um, prime cities like uh, Beijing or Shanghai. I think uh, uh, it helps uh, the property developers unload their, their best assets. But I think uh, the overall help would be minimal because uh, if your properties are in those uh, second tier or third tier cities, then I think uh, the the impact would be would not be much. Well, I think it certainly helps short short term relief, but it doesn't solve the problem of um, the unfinished apartments, people who can cannot take delivery of their goods, the uh, problem also of the supply chain of uh, contractors who haven't been paid because of the real pro- of the real estate developers crisis. So obviously they have to do something on the monetary side and they have opened the tabs, but it is very conjunctural, whereas the problem I think is very structural. So obviously the uh, central bank is doing its job, but it has to be uh, you know, done in conjunctions with uh, other policy measures. And uh, again, uh, for the real estate, and we, I think uh, you have this overinvestment for several, several uh, decades. And uh, it's a, it's a bit of a overhang, and well, it's a massive overhang, and it's going to take a lot of time to actually clear that. Mm-hmm. I mean, China's cut mortgage rates a few times now, hasn't it, since 2022? But it seems that as one of the problems is there's all this red tape in the way to actually try and purchase houses, isn't it? There's a long list of restrictions um, and, and sort of red tape that just curbs prices and transactions. Is that also going to really restrict demand for homes? Does that need to be dealt with? 
I think the major problem is the um, price expectation instead of red tapes. Because if you are um, uh, home buyers, you know that the price will not go up much, and then you can delay your decisions, and you know that uh, there will be plenty of supply. And so I think uh, these these kind of expectations need to be reversed. Uh, so so this is quite difficult. I think uh, that's why I, only the prime city would 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 would, mm. would be better. Otherwise, I think uh, all the inventories in those uh, second tier or third tier cities actually would, would would need a lot of time to 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 digest. I think. Yeah, price expectation, of course, is the is an issue. Uh, but at the end of the day, the problem is there is already over stretching of savings into that sector. We know there will be a declining population, so the natural supply on top of the new co newly constructed things will be higher than the demand at some point. So I think the real issue is to start diverting away from uh, real estate and starting to have a, a balanced uh, reallocation of capital, and especially from savings. From, and I think that is going to take time. This is a real rebalancing which needs to happen. Mm. And is the, how are the markets going to react to this when they reopen today, do you think? Do you think investors are going to see this now as China at last trying to enact some sort of stimulus measures, which they've been disappointed in so far? I think the uh, market would, would, would still uh, uh, exit those uh, old economy and property-related uh, uh, stocks. So their rebound would be sort of lift. Mm. But uh, the lower mortgage rates actually would help consumption. So I think uh, the, those uh, uh, better consumption stocks actually would uh, have some support. And also, I think uh, companies uh, with uh, potential to expand offices like Pintodor, I think, uh, would be liked by the market. So I think uh, it would be only a few counters uh, getting support. Yeah, I agree with Alex on, on this. I think you would also have to look out for banks because if you start to have some exposure, and increase exposure to mortgage uh, to mortgages, and they continue and start increasing non-performance. I think that could be quite dangerous on the uh, on the bank side as well. So, I think yeah, short-lived because uh, obviously people will react to the news. But as I said, for something sustainable, you need some proper uh, address of the underlying problem. I mean, this makes a difference to banks' sort of net interest margin, doesn't it? Although they've cut their um, deposit rates as well um, now, but presumably this is going to put banks under under more pressure. I think that people would, would be concerned about the asset quality uh, more than the uh, interest differential. So mm. I think uh, banks actually would still be being depressed. Mm. What about the measures to try and support the, uh, the renminbi by cutting the FX reserve requirement ratio by uh, 2%? I mean, how, how do you take this? What is the, the, bank of, uh, the People's Bank of China signaling here? That it's concerned already about the slide in the renminbi? They're trying to boost liquidity on the, uh, on the market and not intervening directly. Um, I guess they have a bit of, uh, of room to maneuver on that side. They are just managing the, the, currency, the currency effects at the moment. Mm. I think it's just a signal saying, well, they ke they're keeping an eye on it. And uh, I think at some point, really, they will they really have to do something. They will have to intervene more, into, more actively. Yeah, but you can see the, uh, the support in the market actually is very short-lived. Mm -hmm. We are back to the level on... Uh, Friday mornings already, so um, this is uh, not helping much. Mm. And, and what about uh, the economy overall? We had the um, the, the Kaishin uh, manufacturing survey. How, how do you how do you take the, what it's telling us? It's basically said the PMI rose to fifty one in August from forty nine point two, so back into expansionary territory. It's the strongest pace of expansion in factory activity uh, since February. 
and New Order production sub-indices also re-entered expansionary territory. Do you think maybe that people have been too gloomy about the Chinese economy in, uh, in, in perhaps the first half of the year and maybe you know we're, we're sort of um, not being optimistic enough? I don't know. I think um, I mean it's only one it's only one month anyway. So there's always volatility in this. Plus you also have a Christmas around the corners. So that's always a cyclical factor. Um, in terms of uh, economy, I mean I I think there is a real issue. I mean whether you look at tourism and you look outside, you don't see a lot of uh, Chinese activity and Chinese signs. So I guess we'll see um, until there is confidence going back to the market. And I think whether it's domestic or or foreigners. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to be gloomy. And uh, once we see these confidence coming back, then I think <laughs> we probably will mm. see a turnaround. Mm. Well, we've got the Kaishin survey, uh, services survey coming out today. We've also got trade data coming out later on this week as well, and inflation data as well from the mainland. So some key data um, sort of coming. But how, how are you feeling, Alex, about the economy? Still gloomy, of course, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is just one piece of data and also probably our factor for Christmas order and probably we, we, we will have a new iPhone launch soon as well. So um, anyway, I think uh, we need more evidence to, 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 to support the bullish wheel. So this is still too early to go for a reversal. Mm -hmm. What about Gina Raimondo's visit last week to China? She's hailing this new approach now uh, to dealing with China uh, frictions, which is setting up these groups to sort of discuss uh, controversial issues between the two sides. She says at least now uh, the two sides are, um, are talking through these working um, groups. One, one of these working groups is going to include business representatives and focus on commercial issues. The other is going to exchange information on um, export controls. How do you feel? at the end of the week now, um, having assessed her visits, do you think um, it has put a flaw under US-China relations? Absolutely not. I think it's all uh, high-level politics anyway, so this kind of, uh, you know, word, uh, just uh, talks are just uh, rhetorics, but at the end of the day, will have no impact. I think unless uh, we see something really concrete coming out, otherwise I don't think people would change the perceptions that uh, the relationship is still quite bad. I think, at, and and next year there will be elections in the U.S. I think uh, people will expect uh, the Democrats remain very uh, tight on China. Mm. But these working groups, I mean, they used to have them, didn't they? And, and they used to uh, talk quite frequently. And then they got cancelled by, by China after the visit of Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. But is it at least a positive step that these groups have been re-established and there is now lines of communication going on, which is what businesses have been asking for, haven't they? They've been saying, you know, you've, you've got to talk to each other. I, I mean... It's always good to have growth, but I think the, uh, the the situation has changed because before the economy was really market driven and was looking much more to the private sector and the business side. Where since COVID and uh, the push for common prosperity, you know, I think we're seeing a much more top down approach and top down control from the economy side. You know, I don't think this, uh, these groups will have any kind of impact on the decision making process. Mm. I, I suppose the, the thing that China is going to be disappointed about is that there's no relaxation of these export controls on high technology, high manufacturing um, chips. Now, Gina Raimondo says this is just a tiny part of the overall commerce between the US and China, and 99% of commerce has no restrictions on it at all. Um, I don't know how she came up with that number. 
But I presume China is going to be disappointed because it's these high technology chips that they most want, isn't it? And they most wanted the uh, the restrictions lifted on. So in that sense, the the issue that's most important to China, uh, nothing's been resolved. Yeah. So I think that's why people are probably was a bit very disappointed because right now it's the AI era and you need those chips uh, to develop. So um, this is very key. And this is having an impact on China's economy, even though it may be uh, under 1% of uh, exports, it's, it's having quite a big impact. Yeah, because uh, you expect AI to advance fast, so uh, time will be very critical. So even a short period of time probably could be quite critical, because the, this is a race to to, 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 to the excellence. So, so I think uh, uh, that's why this is a very key part. I think it has a massive impact, especially on those sectors. I mean, China went from being a massive leader in AI to actually being a laggard now. So there is a real issue for China. And I think until there is a proper you know, willingness to sit down and confront all the problems from restrictions to technology uh, transfer to technology protection, um, that's going to be very unlikely to, to, to change, especially as uh, Alex mentioned, we've got elections coming up next year in China. In, uh, in the US, US yeah. Um, the other piece of news that's, that, that looks interesting on the geopolitical front, we've got the G20 summit uh, coming up in New Delhi at the end of this week. Looks like President Xi Jinping, according anyway to, to Western sources, isn't going to attend, which presumably will be a blow uh, to the G20, certainly to India, which is, uh, which is hosting um, that. What's it, what's it signalling that, do you think? I think it means uh, uh, the relations will not improve much and uh, this is uh, the, the world against China right now. Mm. It, it seems to be, doesn't it, that um, China's not really making that much in terms of positive steps to try and mend relations with India and with Western countries in the, in the G20. It seems to be becoming more detached from, uh, from, from those nations. Yeah, uh, especially India because uh, they, they actually have some confrontations in the border. So mm. I think that this is quite difficult to women to 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 to, to get a better relationships in going forward. The press in India is basically saying that uh, President Xi Jinping is doing this deliberately to basically sabotage uh, the talks because China doesn't want India to to look too good and and you know be seen as a as a leader. Do you, do you think there's any truth in that? looks like it because it's very it's a bit weird especially after what happened with the BRICS meeting where there seems to be uh, trying to you know to 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 mend problems so I think it's because this one's the G20 and not specifically BRICS with the other countries I think they are trying their ability to uh, to have an impact on the uh, Indian image. Mm, I mean, it's uh, it, it seems, doesn't it? If you look at what happened at BRICS, I mean, what some media commentators are saying is that there's, is China doesn't really want engagement with the rest of the world or with the Western world. It just wants to be the leader of the alternative world uh, to, to the West. It's not really interested in, in, in engagement. Do you think there's any truth in that? I think it probably is a matter of choice <laughs> because the, the, the other parts of the world are, are, are not cooperating. So I think that's why they are getting some other alternative exits. Mm. The problem also is how you lead because that means also multilateral cooperation and there has been a lot of disappointments from other countries. So I think China has really to decide what kind of place it wants uh, within even the alternative world because it's not you know, grouping some people around you. Collaboration is just more than just a building bridges uh, in the long term so that's uh, that's going to be a big issue for china and, and not meeting your know, your counterparts in india and other countries isn't really going to help build those bridges kelly i absolutely agree so and given the uh, what has been happening in sri lanka and other places in africa i think uh, you know people 
we're, big, we're giving China the benefit of doubt, but uh, I don't think it will have it for very long. See what's happening on uh, the uh, Belt Road Initiative in Europe, uh, people are exiting it. So uh, it's mm. uh, something they have to uh, be very careful about. Mm. Let's turn our attention to the US because we've had some important economic data. We had the jobs figure uh, on Friday. It basically showed the US economy added 187,000 jobs in August. That exceeded market expectations of 170,000. But there was a cumulative 110,000 downward revision to the prior two months of payrolls. It's the third consecutive month uh, that payrolls have been below the 200,000 mark. The jobless rate rose to 3.8%. That's above forecasts of 3.5%. That's partly because the labour force participation rate uh, rose to 62.8%. That basically means more people are entering the workforce. Average hourly earnings less than expected by 0.2% after a 0.4% advance in the prior month. It's the smallest rise in average hourly earnings since February uh, uh, 2022. I guess, Alex, the Fed is going to be quite pleased uh, with, with these numbers. Yeah, because uh, companies are still adding jobs, but uh, labor supply is increasing. So wage increase uh, actually will be less. So I think uh, this is the best combination mm. you can get from the job data right now. It's exactly what the Fed was hoping to see, really, wasn't it? People re-entering the workforce, keeping uh, that unemployment rate uh, sorry, keep, keeping those wages uh, lower. So this is, you know, they're basically getting everything they need from here. So do they now hold off from a further interest rate hikes? I think they probably should. And uh, But uh, the, the, the stranger part is that uh, we got a very weak treasury market on Friday. So mm. that is uh, a very weird reaction from the market. Mm. Yeah, I think I totally agree with Alex. Uh, the Fed has everything they want. They have a steepening yield curve. So they have higher long-end interest rate and actually it's slightly lower on the short end. So we're probably going to look at uh, some stabilization for the, uh, for, for the basic deposit rates. So uh, they probably will um, keep the, the, the rates at there. I don't see we'll see any increase at this stage. And yeah, this first time we're seeing some kind of uh, softening on the labor market, which I guess that's really what they wanted to see. So now we'll have to see uh, the expectations on, uh, on inflation and if that comes uh, back into their they're ranged and we should be we should start seeing some stable uh, monetary policy in the u.s do, do you think the u.s economy is slowing if you look at the leading indicators they've disappointed haven't they and uh, and some of the the data that we've had recently on the economy has has come in below forecast so do you think now uh we're, we're now looking at a slowing u.s economy yeah i think so because uh, you have the high interest rate for quite some time already so the impact actually should be reflected in the real economy mm. yeah. Yeah, definitely softening. I wouldn't qualify high interest rate environment, but it's definitely softening. And uh, I guess uh, rebalancing after such a long extended period of very, very low interest rates. We, we had the ISM manufacturing PMI that climbed to 47.6, but it's still um, in contractionary territory. It's been there uh, below 50 now since last November. So that's the most prolonged period of contraction in manufacturing since the recession in 2007 um, and 2008. I guess um, that that's one of the data that the, the Fed will be looking closely at to say that, you know, to see the impact of these previous rate hikes. I think it's also the impact of uh, people changing habits because uh, this, they probably go for services instead of uh, actual goods. So I think uh, that's why the manufacturing uh, sector is quite bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree with Alex. And then I said the next bit that we'll be looking at is how inflation numbers come into uh, into equation on the next reading. But uh, I think they've done a, a reasonable good job and they have uh, the time to wait and see for the time being. Mm -hmm.
So then let's talk about the markets then and how the markets are around the world have been reacting to all this news and, and data. First of all, US stocks, they had their biggest weekly gain since June um, last week. Um, it, it, there's two ways you could look at this, isn't there? I mean, maybe they're reacting to the fact that uh, the Fed is not going to raise interest rates anymore. But at the same time, they've got to deal with the fact that the economy um, is slowing and earnings have been slowing as well. So um, where do they go from here? I think uh, it's still polarized. Uh, actually, gold stocks still um, not too good. Um, uh, apart from Nvidia, actually, other 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 gold stocks are not performing too much uh, on this uh, uh, rebound. And people are going for those companies with a good mode uh, uh, in the traditional business, like uh, Mastercard, Visa Card, etc. So uh, people are changing their their taste. So uh, we probably may see rotation into those traditional companies to support the market. But I think uh, growth stock probably was still affected by the uh, high long term yield. So uh, that probably would not. Uh, they probably would lag behind the market. I think we had a very very long expansion and uh, growth uh, and and market rise in, despite the tightening cycle because we had earnings very, very resilient. But I think we may be in a situation where you start seeing slowing earning growth and maintaining a high interest rate environment. So I think overall, uh, especially in the US, it's probably time to start to be careful on this market. And, and what do high interest rates, what are they doing to firms' um, interest expenses? Are they now climbing or have firms locked in these low interest rates that we saw a couple of years ago and, and been protected for it, for, from it? I think it depends on the company's uh, management of their finances. So mm. different companies actually would have different uh, outcomes uh, in this environment. So what... Even, even though, I mean, the maximum you will probably have in terms of cash management is maximum five years. So they are mm -hmm. going to start being feeling the cost of refinancing in any cases. Plus, uh, bear in mind, uh, when you have interest rates now at a long-term interest rate, four, four and a half, uh, I mean, in terms of dividends, you would expect a significant dividend from your companies and obviously the discount starts to be quite important. So I think uh, companies now to maintain this equity valuation needs to perform and uh, I think the risk is on the downside. Mm. And bond yields, you mentioned earlier, Alex, the, uh, the bond markets, the, the long end um, is suffering now quite badly, isn't it? Although yields on the, on the short end uh, did fall a little bit on Friday, but they jumped uh, from sort of 10 years and above um, on, the, on the long end of the curve. So it's basically steepening the yield curve, this, isn't it? Yeah, I think that this is the uh, part to be concerned because uh, the long end actually means that people can lock in the interest rate for quite some time. So I think the failure of the rebound of Treasury is actually is a, is a bad sign for the market. So it's indeed pretty cautious. It's a bit of a tricky one for the Fed because whenever they manipulate your short end, the real activity is for the refinancing at the long end. So I think they were quite relieved to see some action on the long end, but that's something they will have to keep under control. Um, in terms of an absolute level, we're really at long-term average. So they have plenty of room to maneuver. And I think, you know, given they always, they have been stating with something, they're still concerned about the level of inflation. I think, you know, well, if it doesn't really collapse at the long end, they'll be very happy with that levels. And what about out here? Um, although the markets were closed on Friday, for the month of August, Hong Kong's stock indices, the world's worst performers um, among all the major equity gauges around the world, the Hang Seng ended August at 18,382. That brings its August losses to 8.5%. The tech index was down 8.1%. For the month, the China Enterprises Index of mainland companies listed in Hong Kong ended the month 8.2% um, lower. So 
there hasn't been anything worse, has there, any, Alex, anywhere else in the world uh, than, than Hong Kong. But what, what are your thoughts going forward from here? First of all, I think uh, sentiment has improved a little bit because if you look at the ADRs, actually they are quite resilient recently, probably because of the strong results from uh, PDD. And if you look at FU2, actually it's also rose a little, uh, quite a lot of, uh, in the last week. Uh, so sentiment has improved a little bit, but probably we would be a little bit disappointed by Paul Chen's uh, comments on the stamp duty reduction. So um, probably they would limit the upside, and also I think uh, all sectors related to properties would have limited upside. Uh, they, their, their long-term outlook is still quite bad, uh, and I still would use any rebound to, to reduce the, that sector. So, and also manufacturing, I think, uh, would still be bad. So only a few counters, I think, uh, would be uh, okay to invest in Hong Kong. So you still haven't really changed your outlook much because you've been gloomy for a little while, and, and rightly so, but uh, it sounds like you're not getting that optimistic at the moment. Oh, I'm optimistic on a few counters. I think uh, you need to go for companies which has uh, the power to compete in the world, uh, for example, PDD, but, but only a few counters can do that, so there's uh, limited choices in China. I think for Hong Kong, um, obviously there's a, there's a problem of confidence on the market, problem of confidence in China, but at the same time, the market seems to have found a flaw. Uh, I think we're finding this flaw at the moment, so except if we see really a credit shock in the region, which could happen, I think the the, ups, the downside is fairly limited at those levels. Now, in terms of upside, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, we need to find uh, drivers for value, and we probably need some new entrants. So I guess uh, what Paul Chan discussion is, uh, how do you drive those new people to come to Hong Kong, uh, innovative people, creator of value? That's really what you need for, for starting to revive this market, and obviously overall confidence in the structure and uh, the authorities. Alex, you mentioned Paul Chan's uh, comments about the stamp duty. Are, are you surprised? Because I have to say, when this task force was announced to look in ways to boost liquidity, the people I asked, their number one issue was the stamp duty. Cut the stamp duty. They said, by international standards, it's way too high. But here's Paul Chan sort of ruling it out before the task force has even started its job. Yeah, it's a little bit surprising because the market has widely expected that and also China has already done so. Uh, the impact may not be that much. Uh, it helped uh, speculators uh, to reduce the cost, but uh, that would be help for um, the market to, to, to reduce the liquidity risk by, by reducing the stamp duty because if you got more speculators to do day trading, so you would have a better liquidity in the market and that would help to... Um, get the better valuations uh, overall in the long term. So I think uh, this is uh, a wrong move by Paul Chen. So, I think, uh, they, so if it's not going to be the cut in stamp duty, what is it that's going to boost liquidity? Uh, I think uh, they probably would uh, come to um, more PR work only. Because uh, another thing to do is to uh, change the bullet system. Mm. I think uh, this is opposed by many listed companies because they think uh, there would be a lot of administrative work uh, uh, if they change the border system. So uh, that probably would not be implemented as well. So uh, finally, probably we would just get some uh, PR works and also um, uh, people up then and also Hong Kong EX probably will try to lure more companies to, to come to Hong Kong. But that is also PR work, I think. So at the end of the day, probably uh, we probably only would get some more PR work from the, from the Hong Kong EX. I, well, I'm not so sure it's about PR work from Hong Kong Exchange. That's PR work for, for the whole Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong administrative region <laughs> because what you want is companies who want to float, install in Hong Kong, wants to float on HKEX. 
Um, at the end of the day, I don't think liquidity is really tested by the, uh, by the stamp duty because liquidity is only tested when the market goes down. And typically, the speculators and the program trading out in, in that situation. And so stamp duty is not going to have much an impact. What you want is IPOs, people who want to trade the stocks. Uh, there's certainly some reforms you can do on, this, uh, on the stock exchange. I never understood why companies can be suspended for 24 months or even more than that. That's something which is uh, not, uh, not right by any uh, mature and international exchanges. So they can do some reforms at the uh, mic mi market structure, but what is really important in company wants to list and uh, wants to be in Hong Kong. And I think it comes down to also some reform in China. That's the real, the real thing. Okay, well, thank you both for your thoughts this morning. You heard there's Sam Favreau, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital, Alex Wong, who is Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Ben Cavender, who is Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. Morning, Ben. Good morning. Now, Gina Raimondo is hailing a new approach to handling China frictions after she wrapped up her four-day trip to China last week. Uh, she was talking about these new mechanisms for having discussions with China, uh, these new working groups, which will include business representatives to focus on commercial issues, exchange information on export controls. How do you see her visit? Has it, uh, is it a new approach to dealing with China and has it changed maybe the, the outlook for relations? I think that it's it's great that as much discussion as possible happens. Um, I think there's a feeling for sure within the business community that there hasn't been enough discussion. And so because of that, there's a lot of misinterpretation on both sides about maybe what either government's agenda is uh, relative to the business community. But I think having said that, you know, talking to uh, U.S. business leaders, I think overall companies are still quite pessimistic about the situation in China right now and still very much feel that uh, they're maybe not being given a fair chance or that it's it's quite a hostile environment in which to do business right now. And so I think they're really going to be waiting to see what materializes out of this over the next six months and whether or not it means they're, they're going to be getting you know, better treatment or a, a little bit more of a, a fair playing field before they think about investing further. That, that seems to be the sense I get talking to the um, market. I mean, she was talking about, um, you know, it's great that we're talking, but we need to see some action. And some of those issues that you raised have been long-standing issues, haven't they, about unfavorable treatment to foreign companies, preferential treatment to state-owned firms, intellectual property theft. These have been issues which companies have been complaining about for several years now and nothing appears to have changed yeah i mean i, I think in a lot of ways it's still a very challenging market in which to do business I, I think you know you mentioned intellectual property you know there are areas like that where you are seeing now probably better enforcement than we had five years ago or ten years ago but at the same time um, I think there's a very clear feeling, at least in certain sectors right now, that there is preferential treatment from the government for uh, domestic businesses and, and growing domestic industry. And, and I think the Chinese government would say probably rightly so. Um, but at the same time, China is badly in need of foreign direct investment right now. And um, it's very uncommon at the moment to find U.S. business leaders who are really gung-ho about China right now because they aren't really seeing the growth story, but at the same time, they're seeing a lot of risk. So yeah, until more concrete changes happen, I, I think companies are going to be quite cautious. So when she says um, American companies are more and more seeing China as uninvestable, is, is she reflecting there fairly? What is um, the, the view of American companies? Are, are you seeing them saying the same thing? 
uh, you know, I think it, it's certainly not every American company. I, I think there's certain sectors. So if you look at, say, apparel, for example, um, where American brands are still really in, in very strong leadership positions and are investing in a future growth and, and do feel that they have a path forward. But then there are other sectors like, say, the automotive sector where you have U.S. brands that are really looking more now at a five-year or 10-year exit strategy because they feel that there's really no way they can compete head-to-head with domestic Chinese firms that are getting preferential support or that are just more nimble because they're they're laser-focused on a single market. So from that perspective, I, I think there's a feeling that once you add in all the red tape, once you add in the fact that, that China's maybe not doing enough to support economic uh, recovery right now, that it's it's maybe not the time to invest. I mean, the, the, um, she came up with this figure that 99% of trade and commerce between US and China is free of any sort of restrictions, any sort of restraints, which well, I have to say, I was a bit surprised when I heard that, because, you know, when we know that there are a lot of Chinese companies in the tech sector uh, that have got restrictions placed on them, there's the restrictions on the, the export of high technology. Um, but yet, she seems to be playing that down and saying, look, you know, there's, um, you know, 99% of trade is free and we we can deal with those issues yeah i mean i think if you're talking about basic mid-level or even in some cases advanced manufacturing and and, you know shipping or assembling physical products then yes it's a it's quite an open market and you know it's beneficial for the two economies to be linked i think the challenge is really when you look at you know, how the U.S. or how China are planning the next 50 years from a policy perspective, and you look at things like AI or, um, you know, electric vehicles or new energy or, or any kind of emerging technology where you start seeing things become quite a bit more problematic in terms of how free access really is. So it might be only 1% is restricted in terms of sheer number of companies, but that 1% is a, a very important set of companies. And so I think mm. that's where the challenge lies. And I presume that's why China is going to be disappointed with the outcome of these talks, because that 1%, the, uh, the, the restrictions on high technology have done a lot of damage. And that's where it really wanted to make progress and see restrictions lifted. But Gina Raimondo made it very clear that wasn't going to happen and it wasn't even uh, negotiable. So even though uh, she talked about we can deal with artificial intelligence, climate change, those aren't the issues that China China really wanted um, addressed. No, and, it, and you know, to be fair, it, it puts China in quite a difficult position because China does have to find ways to, to further grow the economy and, and create jobs for white-collar workers entering the workforce. And to do that, they have to be able to grow quantum computing or AI or biotech or aerospace or any of these sectors where the U.S. is really making it quite difficult for Chinese companies. Um, so from the Chinese side's perspective, it's, it's quite difficult to come to kind of a, a common understanding if the U.S. is not providing a way forward that allows China to grow in those spaces. Mm. And what do you make of these reports, which haven't yet been confirmed by China's foreign ministry, but they seem to be widespread, certainly among Western leaders, that President Xi Jinping is going to skip the G20 summit in New Delhi um, at the weekend? What, what sort of signal is that sending out? Yeah, I, I think it definitely sort of sends a signal that that perhaps he's he's frustrated with some of the bilateral or multi-party discussions that he's had with with foreign nations over the last year, and is sort of saying now, well, listen, 
you know, maybe China is just going to do its own thing and, and we don't need the, the G20 quite as badly as maybe they think we do. And they should maybe be worried that we're not, uh, you know, showing our face at, at such an important event and, you know, sending somebody who's maybe not quite so highly ranked in our stead. So I think it definitely sends a message. But at the same time, I, I think that um, while China, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric right now about kind of circling the wagons and, and, and turning inward and, and being strong and being independent, I think China also knows they have to maintain these ties and have to maintain international trade. They're just probably going to be doing it maybe a little bit a little bit differently and, and a little bit, you know, behind closed doors versus um, some of these bigger summits and events. And presumably it doesn't help relations with India because it rather undermines India's attempts to sort of project itself through the G20 as a, as a global leader and, and promote its economy um, in the lead up to, to the G20. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly highlights that there's, there's quite a bit of friction in that relationship. And I think, um, you know, India in in recent media and, and sort of press releases the government put out um, indicating a tight relationship with the U.S. has probably wrinkled China a little bit because China is feeling that, that maybe they're, they're being further surrounded by countries who are not sort of so friendly to, to the Chinese agenda. And, and, and so I think this is a way of sort of pushing back against that. Now, on the economy, let me ask you, what do you make of some of the support measures that were announced um, last week? First of all, the PBOC cutting the FX reserve requirement ratio by two percentage points from 6% to 4%. What's the impact of that going to be? You know, I, I think all of these changes that, that we're hearing about, they're, they're going to have small positive effects. But um, at the same time, talking with especially private business owners, small business owners, and sort of the average consumer on the street in China right now, there's a very overwhelmingly sort of cautious sentiment that sort of feels like not enough is being done or the efforts aren't coordinated enough and that, you know, irrespective of these rate drops, um, it's not really going to get companies to really think heavily about making investment right now because they're too uncertain about what future demand looks like. And is that the same also on the uh, the mortgage rates? China's cut the down payments now for uh, it's going to be twenty percent for first time buyers, thirty percent for second time purchasers, and also said mortgage rates can be now negotiated between banks and customers according to market conditions. So we saw Beijing and Shanghai lower their mortgage interest rates uh, for first time home buyers on Friday. Guangzhou, Shenzhen did it earlier um, last week. Is this going to boost home demand? Do you think? I think it'll boost demand from where it is right now, and, and we should see some action. I think a lot of consumers were sort of waiting for something like this to happen. But at the same time, um, unlike you know even two or three years ago where there was a sense that the real estate really wasn't going to decline in value and, and was going to continue to be an appreciating asset, a lot of consumers now, when you when you talk to them, there's this sort of sense where they don't really know which direction the market's going in, and they're not quite so convinced that real estate is a, a safe asset class to be investing in, and, and Chinese really do see it as an asset class. And so um, I think it will stimulate the market to some degree, and it's, it's good that that happened because that's that's been one of the pain points for a lot of people. But I'm not sure it's enough to really completely stabilize the real estate market, and we, we could still be in for a little bit of a rocky ride uh, over the next few months still. 
And what about for the economy overall? We did have a bit of a surprise, didn't we, on the Kaishin manufacturing PMI, which returned uh, to expansion. The PMI rose to 51, but we got more data this week. We got the Kaishin services PMI today. We've got trade data, inflation data um, this week. What's your overall sense uh, of the economy? Do you think maybe there are signs that it's turning the corner? Uh, uh, yeah, I was a little bit surprised that 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 number came out maybe as well as it did. I, I do think that while the economy in China is certainly bad, that you know it's probably not as bad as has been stated in you know a lot of media coverage over the last month or two. And so probably we will slowly be digging in the right direction over the next one to two quarters. And so. I think the fact that domestic demand for manufacturing has sort of picked up a little bit, it's a good sign that things are stabilizing. I think the caution point there would be um, uh, export demand is still quite weak. Uh, and so I don't think factory owners right now are really excited and are in a very happy place. They're just they're just content right now that maybe the, the damage is not spreading further, is mm. how I'd put it. I, I was thinking that maybe people have been a bit too gloomy about the economy in the in the first half of the year because, as you mentioned, it's um it, it's not collapsing, is it? I mean, the economy is still growing. It's disappointing for sure in the sense that people were expecting so much more after the ending of of lockdowns. But this, why they're disappointed? The, you know, the the data isn't showing a, a great collapse in the China economy. Yeah, I mean, the way I'd sum it up is: listen, like the economy is still growing at probably what is going to ultimately be a sustainable rate for China. The economy is just too big now to you know, go back to the days of posting 6, 7, 8, 9% annual growth. I think the challenge is, is that if you're talking about the retail economy, which is what people tend to kind of focus on, is that consumers are being very cautious right now. Um, getting them to open their wallets is extremely important to a whole lot of international brands that have invested quite heavily in the market. And right now, they don't really know how to do that. And so the big discussion point becomes, well, given all of the extra challenges of trying to be successful in China, you know, very, very aggressive marketing, need for local product development, need to have a strong local team. Is it worth it if you're only getting four or five percent a year? Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the struggle is. It's not that the economy is truly horrible. It's that it's just not growing at a rate to offset a lot of the challenges of doing business in China. Okay. And of course, the markets um, certainly have been gloomy, haven't they? The Hang Seng in August, down 8.5%. The China Enterprises Index, 8.2% lower. Uh, the Shanghai Composite, Composite uh, down about 5.2% last month. Um, really a pretty awful uh, month for Chinese markets. Do you, do you see any sign that maybe things are going to turn there? I'm not overly optimistic. I mean, I think a lot of the the sell down is, you know, looking at a lot of these businesses that have PE ratios that are predicated on, you know, really high forward growth now saying, well, maybe that that high growth story doesn't exist anymore in China or is going to be delayed for quite a while. And so I, I'm not sure there's that much support right now for a big rebound in the markets, uh, you know, unless we see some kind of really large concerted policy effort coming from the government, which I just I, I can't imagine them doing unless things get quite a bit worse. Um, I, I think we'll probably see the markets being fairly anemic in terms of demand. Okay, Ben, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. That's Ben Cavender, who is Managing Director at the China Markets Research Group.
You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves on my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at Wing Fung Financial Group, and our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.